Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Game and Dev Grit podcast. And we have a returning guest this episode, our our very first guest from our very first show. Ripley's Woo. back, Ripley. So um, we remember you as the student guy. So what has the student yeah. guy been up to? What are you doing? What's going on? Let us know. Uh, so student guy, it's been a year, two years, I think, uh, since then. And uh, things have changed. Things have changed quite a lot. So I've gone from my basic classes into my more advanced classes. And most recently, I've just been working on my capstone project and moving into internship stuff. And it's like my current thing is I'm the product manager for a 30-person team in my uh, class. Okay. So that's wild. That, that's a thing. Can you talk about what was it? Capstone project? Yeah, so capstone project. So at the end of at least our four-year program, all of these seniors are expected to get into groups of about five people and produce a game at the end of it, uh, which is supposed to show the culmination of all of your skills and experience of the game design program. And most of them are kind of bad, not going to lie. Uh, so mostly because you only have about a year or less than a year, you only have two semesters, that's what, like eight months to develop the thing from beginning to end. And we're very bad at teaching programming and it's mostly just, I mean, we do have some good product projects. We do have some teams who are able to get together. And I remember this one, which was sort of like a jousting, like couch party co-op game type thing. That was fun. But most of the time, it's just sort of like low quality stuff. So my team decided to get meet together early. We I was actively recruited because of my experience on the uh, thirty person class working as the product manager, and uh, we're trying currently in pre development, mostly just putting together style guide, design documents, stuff like that. Yeah, why so, don't you talk a little bit about what your capstone project is looking like, and what are you doing on it? What are the challenges? Uh, so right now, the current direction we're going in is sort of a, a boss rush type platformer game. So think similar to Cuphead, except instead of a bullet hell gameplay style, more of a melee thing. So you could probably best equivalent that with something like Mega Man, something like Castlevania. Okay. So how does that start? What are you doing? What do you do first? Why? When? Throw all that on us. So the first few steps we're in are right now putting together the mood board, putting together the design document, and the most recent thing I did was a pitch document. So in terms of documentation, the phases we're working in, I created a pitch document based on an initial meeting we had where we all just threw out ide whatever ideas we had. When we, when we coalesced around one, we put together I put together a pitch document and presented it to everybody, which was basically just a, hey, here's the direction we want to go in for the final game. Uh, it basically just had, hey, here are the features we want to have, here's the gameplay style, the camera perspective, uh, a few images to work as reference, and uh, what kind of music do we want to have, what kind of art style do we want to have. So in so, our case, it was... Oh, oh sorry, I was going to say, what's going through your mind through this whole process? Like, honestly, what are the honest thoughts? when you start this and these things are happening, it's like, oh shit, what am I going to do? What is this game? Like, why don't you let us know some of the honest thoughts going through your mind as you're like going through this process? Uh, so my honest thoughts were, 
Uh, I'm kind of a nerd, so my whole thing was I made documents on documents on documents, specifically before I even before we even started working on the like what kind of game do we want to make? I just made a massive list of the design constraints we would be working under because this is a game that will be presented in a very specific place under very specific circumstances. So we just need to make a thing that looks good in those circumstances. So yeah, I can pull up the list here, but specifically it's looking good in a scenario where someone will only play this thing for about 10 minutes and they're not going to watch every single thing you make. So it kind of disqualifies you making any sort of open world thing. It kind of disqualifies you making anything with a whole vast range of content, a full big explorable space. Oh, that's good. So you started with the constraints. Yes, exactly. So how did you come across doing that? Did you just figure that out was the most logical? Did you learn that in school or something? Or how did you come down to doing that? Uh, most of that was just self-taught. Uh, yeah, I'd been to the Senior Expo before. I'd seen the previous year's projects, so I knew sort of what was to be expected there. The other part was just talking to the people who were coordinating everything, so coordinating with professors who were leaving class, coordinating with the uh, department head who was like in charge of setting the parameters of everything. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about when you're doing stuff with school, like when you have projects, and how do you draw the line, or what is the difference between, like, this is something I really want to make because I think it's cool, but I think this is too ambitious and I'm crazy for trying to do this in school versus projects where it'd be like, hey, this will help me learn a lot. Like, how do those, how do you, you know, cross through those things? Because I'm sure there's people that want to do both. And like, what's your stance on it? Or how do those two positions, you know, what, what's your take on that? Yeah. Uh, not going to lie. Most of the time when it's like, because most of the projects we do in my program are more focused on uh, yeah, team building things, so I'm almost never working on like a solo project. And when my teams usually get together and decide, oh, hey, we're going to make a thing, it's almost always, uh, oh, hey, what would be the coolest thing to do? What would be the most fun thing to do? And then working under the constraints set by the professor. Okay, so how does that work out, or how has it worked out so far? Uh, it's been mixed, not going to lie. A big problem is just a big problem working under those constraints is that you're only re really working to the extent that it's enforced by the professor. So you're only working producing as much as needs to be expected. You're not trying to go above and beyond just because you're also having to worry about all of your other classes and all the other projects that you're working on simultaneously. Okay, yeah, because what I was getting at, it's like, you know, oh, let's think of the coolest thing we can do which is just, all right, you're going to make some overscoped thing that's too ambitious and you're not going to even finish like 20% of it. So like usually, unless you're some super game dev god, but versus like, hey, you know, I just started. Why don't I just do a, we do a project where we learn something that's going to be useful, but just, you know, keep the crazy ambition for like our personal projects or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was actually something I ran into uh, freshman year. Uh, just in the first thing, I wanted to do the big, big whole crazy project. I didn't know how to scope it, didn't know how to factor tasks, and it would just ended up with us not being able to produce the thing we wanted to make, and I just ended up getting really disappointed by the end of that. So yeah. I think most of us do that. I did that my first foray into game development, actually filmmaking too. It's just like, 
I think part of that is good because you want to see where you are. You know, like, what can I do? You know, what are my limits? And then you hit your limits and you're like, oh, I fucking suck. Or, you know, you're like, all right, now I need to know where to go. Like, what do I need to, what do I, I know a little bit more about what I need to learn. So it, I think oh, yeah, it is, absolutely. it's useful to do that. You just don't want it to crush you and just be like, well, I can't be the best or, you know, I don't know everything because I haven't learned yet. So like, now, okay, now let's go off and do things we can learn on. Yeah, figure out your own constraints, and more importantly, uh, like build off of that and know what you need to learn and know what you need to rely on others to do with. Yeah, because I think unless you go, you know, flex your muscles in that way, you never know. And, you know, if we put it in a different environment, say like weightlifting or something, you're like, yeah, I could bench press 500 pounds, you know, and then you go try it and you break your arms. And then it's like, no, nah, you could probably start lighter, you know. So, but creatively, yeah, no. we, we usually just like, take on that 500 pound bench press out of nowhere and be like, why should, would I be able to do this? I don't know. Why did I try this? But we don't break our arms in creative projects. So that's good. Oh, absolutely. You haven't broken yeah. your arms in a creative project. Have you? Oh, I don't think so. Yeah. I tend to have a, I mean, this is kind of, yeah, I would say yeah, you could have broken arms mind. right now and not even know, <laughs> dude, that's crazy. Yeah, I kind of have a personal problem right now where if someone, like, presents an idea or, like, someone says something, I'm just like, yeah, no, we should do that, and <laughs> I tend to take on more than I can chew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to do that, too. People would be like, can you do this? Yes! And then I'd go and be like, why did I say I could do this? You know, in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could totally do that. There's that tutorial and this and that. So Yeah, no, it's kind of how I found myself working on, like, six different projects right now, and I don't even realize it, and it's just sort of like, I, there's no way I can do a good job on any of these now that I have to work on all of them. Yeah, if they're all school projects, too, then I would just come back to be like, hey, the important thing is to learn. So it's like, yeah, I didn't finish all the projects, but I pushed myself really hard and learned. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even outside of school stuff, I'm currently working on a game project with my friends along with uh, several other independent. Yeah, I'm working on a interactive fiction thing in Twine and a video essay. Oh, cool. So that's, yeah, that's where you can do your crazy ambitious stuff or whatever, right? Personal. Oh, so, yeah. so like, it's kind of like, I look at that because, you know, I do big projects and then some doing a side project right now, game thing. And it's like, my big project is like my work or my school. And then the tiny side projects are like my fun personal projects, you know? So it's like, oh, I can go try these new things that are too risky for my big, you know, school work thing, whatever. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Twine, it's an incredibly simple program. I would almost, like, I would barely consider it a game program, but it is incredibly useful for if you just have this idea for a story for a game and you just want to see what you can do with it. Yeah, I played around. There's twine and there's yarn. Is there yarn and then there's yarn spinner too, right? That night in the woods uh, dialogue engine I've been seeing. A I bunch am not familiar too. with that, but yeah, I'm going to have to look into yarn. Yeah, I think yarn is like a modded version of twine. And then I think it's yarn spinner, which is an offshoot of yarn or it brings it into Unity or something automatically, something like that. But oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yarn spinner. Okay, yeah, there's some cool text-based stuff and so that is that's like a node-based storytelling right that's where you make the I'm pretty sure i used it before it's little nodes and then you have them offshoot like they have their own little formatting right for it to do different things yep yep exactly and then how what do you do with that like do you put it into like javascript or something else kind of do gamey things or it's just like a standalone story 
Uh, so right now I just have it as a standalone story, just playing directly in engine or yeah, in the direct client. And the main thing I'm doing there is just sort of, uh, yeah, the main premise of the story is you are a guy who's going to explode in seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And each dot, yeah, each option you have two, it's a binary choice every single time playing out. And each one of those represents a single minute of in-game, t- in, in-game time. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So what so are you doing seeing, with it? Like, what's the big thrill of doing it? Like, oh, we can do this or pull this thing off. What's the thing for you? Uh, so the big thing for me is just seeing how many different scenarios I can come up with uh, and how many different endings I can come up with. Because, yeah, seven, yeah, seven rounds of uh, two choices each. And the main thing is just I'm trying to make sure that none of them, like, branch back into each other. So it's going to be like two factor seven different endings, which is something like 300. Yeah, 300 different endings. So just trying to come up with 300 different scenarios and just exploring the world and exploring this protagonist in the sense that, yeah, just sort of like, hey, you're kind of a chud and you're going to die in a few minutes. And is it, so are you having to make all those endings or is it procedural or something or how are you going to do that? Oh yeah, no, this is like me writing all of those engines. It's me writing like two or three paragraphs of text for every single dialogue thing, uh, for every single choice. I'm just going to like brute force write all of them and yeah. see if I can come up with something fun. Yeah. Oh man, my inner coder is like, I don't know, man, get the algorithms out. <laughs> well, I don't know, because, I don't know, I feel like there is something to be said about just having some, like, cool writing uh, associated with it, as opposed to just, oh, hey, you're in the room, there's a box there. Dude, you can create an algorithm that does cool writing for you. Mm. I know, but then I would have to learn how to write an algorithm, and that sounds like more of a uh, old lady who swallowed a fly-type scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm actually doing a current side project that's, like, interactive narrative. Um, Not so much with text, but... There's a lot of, with some pretty basic, just using random values and applying them to storytelling and stuff like that. There's like a lot of interest, interesting things you can do. Oh yeah, that does sound very interesting to me, actually. Yeah, like what I was building, um, it's a different prototype from what I'm doing now, but so there's these things and like, speaking of interactive fiction, you probably read about it, like um, I think UC Santa Cruz, which is a university near here has a lot of the people that are like the cutting edge interactive storytelling people. And um, something that I've been playing with is just using, so it's a really basic kind of game AI thing. It came from Stanford strips, but it's called a planner. And it's really, really simple. And it's just a little system that has actions and actions have preconditions and effects. So it's like an action, like man eats a hamburger. And then you have a bull precondition like must have hamburger. And then in effect, stomach is full, right? So you just make these little actions. And then you can actually just go copy the planner algorithms from different tutorials. But you can feed it whatever you want. So you could have a story where you're just putting these little actions together where it you know, puts them together. Like, hey, the guy went and ate a hamburger because the planner said blah, blah, blah. So, um, and there's been different people have used that for interactive fiction using a planner. And... Yeah, it's not a super complicated piece of code. Like I said, you can go find tutorials and do it, but it's a really cool way of making stories. 
Oh yeah, that sounds very cool. Is that related to the thing you were asking for for the horror trips, or is that something else? Uh, yeah, it was. So oh, I had a, nice. I had a, a much more. So what he's referring to I, on my YouTube channel, I asked people to, to submit the most like cliche horror movie scenes I've ever seen, like the woman running from the killer and she keeps falling down for no reason, and stuff like like tropes like that. And yeah, I was I was gonna make those modular pieces of my engine I was building. But now it's turned into something else. But yeah, it's just like, you know, the more like bad, not good art. Let's just talk about art, writing as an art. Is writing an art? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, okay, writing, film, any of these things. Like the good stuff doesn't follow a template, in my opinion. The good movies, like Stanley Kubrick didn't have a fucking template. You can apply the quote, save the cat, whatever, to his writing. Um, but the bad stuff, has goes by a template you know like the cliched stuff like movies like samurai cop or the room whatever as trippy as they as weird as they are but they are kind of templated so you know when you start looking at templates like i guess it would be really easy to write bad stories <laughs> you know with with those algorithms it's not it's hard to write good stuff but if you go for bad or cheesy or scary or you know any like strong hard genre thing i think it's really easy to turn that to make, have code write it, create it for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, my personal opinions on particularly, like, narrative is it's worse to be boring than it is to be bad. I take something like The Room, which is, like... Dude, that is bad... perfect, too. That's a great quote. That's a, or a good motto. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would take something like The Room, which is bad in, like, an incredibly interesting way as opposed to, like, some, like, some of the Marvel movies, which are all just kind of, like, standard. I can't... I could not tell you what happened in some of them at the end of it. Yeah, I agree a million percent. I'd rather watch something that's bad but entertaining than something that's quote well done or whatever. That yeah, yeah. Ugh. So, so um, yeah. So you're working on those projects. How have now that it's? I think I looked and we talked in May, so it's yeah, almost a year. Um, what has changed? in you, your perceptions of college, you know, studying the game stuff that you are from the reality of it. Um, also what you were taught, how things were going to be, if it's any different from what you're experiencing and your practical applications. Could you talk about some of that stuff? Uh, sure. Yeah. So the main thing that's changed is mostly just in addition to not teaching very good programming, which yeah, I already knew I'm, taking a programming class right now and it's like good but it's kind of too little too late the main thing is that we don't really teach how to lead a game project and how to like plan one out and how to like factor tasks uh do you know what goes into uh, factoring tasks i don't think so no yeah so yeah you have like an individual task which is like design a level and then factoring a task is breaking it down into its component pieces so yeah, one factor might be, uh, like, sketching it out on paper, like, listing out what each of the elements within it do in, term, in like, a programming sense, listing out what all of the art assets are. Another factor might be white-boxing it. Another factor might be testing it out and then writing a review of it. And... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and we don't really teach how to do that because... Basically, for the past three years of my game design experience, it's all just been, hey, go make a game, go figure it out. Huh. Which, has put, which has put 
all of my team leaders for my like 30 person team class, because there's four different teams right now, design, programming, art, and sound. It's kind of put a lot of them in a very rough position, particularly the design leader, because he's like a smart, he's a smart guy, but he just doesn't really have the practical know-how of, hey, this is what you need to ask people when you're assigning different tasks to different people. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like, um, from my filmmaking career, something like I would call it, I think in film they're called breakdowns. So it's like being able to take a film, break it down into scenes, break scenes down into set pieces, break set pieces down into props and actors, break props and actors down, you know, these smaller and smaller um, pieces so that you can manage them. And then, yeah, who's doing what? So, yeah, that's kind of just, I mean, project management stuff that you kind of do learn from experience, I guess. So if you're thrown in, or like you said, you're managing projects, right? Yep. So you're just kind of going to do or die, right? Figure out how to do it or... Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there are some specific things you can learn. Like while I was starting, yeah, starting off a few months ago, managing my 30-person team, I was just sort of like, okay, cool. I have this massive like group of people who I need to keep track of all the tasks of what's the best way to go about this. Because I'd used programs like uh, Jira before. I'd used like Hack and Plan before. But I'd kind of run into problems, particularly on larger teams where it's an external program, so it's difficult to like get people to log on and keep track of it. But also, it's kind of a pain in the ass moving all the different pieces around. Yeah, you know, I was just watching a GDC talk about just that today. It was a, a, the guy from who made Crashlands with the studio, and they were talking about using DevOps. It's like Ooh. a Microsoft Azure DevOps, but it was all about managing your team and how they wasted all this time and sending files around and could manage it. So I've never used it. it was, I was just watching it earlier today like flipping through it when I was eating breakfast. So might be oh, yeah, worth yeah. a look. Oh, definitely. So, so what, yeah, just... Oh, sorry. So what are some things that when you... Before you got into learning about game dev and working on games that you thought you would like and you don't like, or you're like, eh, and what are some things that you never thought you would like but you do? Uh, when I first got in, I thought I would like... Uh, I don't know. It's actually kind of a tricky question because I always knew I wanted to be in design, but something that I didn't think that I would like, which I turns out I like quite a bit, is just sort of like the planning and production, not actually making the game itself, but managing all the people who are making the game. So, like I said, factoring tasks, figuring out organization, and assign task assignment. Okay. So, yeah, one of the problems which I'm sure you're familiar with in the larger AAA games industry is just the very poor management and that goes on there where you have people ending up working 100 hour weeks because they didn't plan out properly in advance and they just have to crunch everything at the last minute. Yeah. And that's something that Crashlands guy, he's done a couple talks about that where they don't plan, but he's like in their studio there's no crunching because there's no planning. <laughs> And I was like, well, this is cool. So I've been following that. Like, I think that's really awesome. And I think those guys figured it out. Yeah. yeah so I'm, yeah, I'm increasingly growing interested in just figuring out how management, specifically in the games industry, is supposed to work and figuring out how all the different pieces, how long each individual task is supposed to take, how long, how to, like, manage out the time, how long each individual thing should take, should last. 
So having some estimation, like some kind of time unit so you can estimate, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, like if I, if I say, oh, hey, I, we need like 10 levels at, uh, by the finished game, how long should it take you to uh, white box one level? Yeah, that's actually really important. And how do you figure that out? Because it depends on the artist or you just, do you just force them into some standard like, hey, dude, you're slow. Or, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, no, because up to a certain point, you like specifically at the point where we're at now, where I'm in college, all of my all the people I'm working with are in college. Mm -hmm. I really don't think that there's that big a difference between in quality, in final quality at least, between someone spending like four hours on something and someone spending like fourteen hours on something. Yeah, it's the what law of diminishing returns. Is that what it is? Like you go yeah, past basically. a certain you go past a certain point, and then it's just like. You know, so I might work stuff. I would, I'd always go for 80%, you know, it's like I'm 80% oh, yeah. there. Okay. Time to move on. Like there's no a hundred. So. Yeah. Yeah. There was this one anime that came out a few years and it was, yeah, the big thing it came out with was when you're young, you should be like producing as much as possible. Not really worrying about quality. Once you're old, you can really start focusing in on the quality once you've learned your craft. Huh? Yeah. Because you're making such big flaws anyway on the fundamental stuff. It doesn't matter how much you polish it until you learn how to not make those big flaws. Yep, exactly. Uh, that's a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, I experienced that myself. Like, my, you know, doing film stuff and my animation sucked and, like, all this, all this other stuff sucked. But then I was, you know, focusing on this minutia that couldn't make up for the parts, you know, the re for the big stuff sucking. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the big thing is just been, oh, hey, yeah, when you're sketching out a level, don't spend more than, like, two hours on it. Or, like, don't spend, yeah. Yeah, don't spend more than two hours on that. If you're making a sprite, don't spend more than, like, an hour, two hours on that. Uh, and just to make sure that someone isn't spending, like, six hours on a 16-bit sprite. Yeah. So how do you, yeah, how do you determine the times? Is it just a general time thing? Is there time units for just task period or does it depend on the task like could you spend you know a day on art but you could spend a week on code how do you figure that out yeah a lot of this is incredibly variable and yeah to be honest i still haven't fully cracked the code on it but yeah the main thing is just for code it tends to take as long as it'll take particularly because the, yeah the solution to your problem might cause other problems so you have to sort out those problems as well yeah, okay. whereas if you're just making a sprite, it could just be, oh, hey, I made the sprite. It doesn't really break anything else once I put it in. Yeah, I guess, too, it helps if whoever's making this stuff knows their role. Because if it's like, say, if you're the project manager and you're trying to pick up some slack and do some art tasks or whatever, it's like you got to be like, hey, I'm just a project manager. I'm just picking up the slack on this art, so I'm not going to try to turn it into you know some masterpiece or whatever. Yep, absolutely. But, yeah, no, the – yeah – Ideally, I would like to come up with, like, finite numbers by the end of it because, yeah, this is kind of bullshit, but notionally, each college student should be spending uh, three to four hours out of class for every hour you spend in class, which notionally has us working on this thing for, like, 20 hours apiece, but that is kind of insane. So, yeah, it's just sort of like, oh, hey, you're expected to work on this for, like, five to ten hours total out of class each week. Oh. And, yeah. 
so is that just because why do you think that is is it just because like the instructors aren't covering everything and they just oh do it on your own like you said yeah it's sort of do it on your own but also it's kind of a expectate kind of an unfair expectation for us to place because everybody has like other classes and everybody has jobs as well and their own independent projects yeah but yeah no it's a very weird thing of the college system where at least where I am I uh, it's yeah you're expected to work three to four hours out of class for every hour you spend in class which is insane and untenable because you're in class for how many hours a day like six eight something yeah no yeah yeah like uh yeah it's four yeah four credit hours six uh five credit hours it's yeah yeah three three four and five are generally the standard ones Oh, yeah, it seems like to me, I mean, so mostly big project management, like, do they have you do like game jams in class? Do you do like jam classes? Uh, unfortunately, no, I have not had a single jam class. We've had some of the clubs on campus uh, do game jams, but I've never had to be like, oh, hey, make a game within this one week. I really wish we did, because I feel like that would really help with uh, rapid prototyping, but Alas, it's all just been like one month long, two month long, three month long projects. Yeah, that seems like it would be a cool thing to do with a class. Like, I mean, I'm no teacher, so I don't know the pain of, you know, or what teachers are going through. You can tell me differently because I don't have any opinion or idea. But it's like, man, that seems like that would be one of the best things you can do once people get to a level where they have basic competency in some of the core stuff. It's just like, dude, just do game jams. Like, yeah, no, I agree if your class was a game jam, so you just came every day and it's like, all right, you got to be done on Friday. You know, I think that's kind of probably some of the most indispensable experience I've had just jamming on projects and just, you know, cause they say with anything, you don't really learn the whole thing until you finish and ship stuff, you mm -hmm. know, the pain and the process and just all the stuff that comes in. And it's like, I think I was talking about that um, with Desilane on the podcast yesterday. Like, how much you learn from finishing anything, not just games, just anything you do and how much it helps, but especially, you know, finishing games really helps you finish games. So yeah, no, you only, you only really know what everything you've learned once you've actually finished it and you're looking back at it. Yeah. Once you're in it, you don't know what it is you've learned, but you haven't learned the big stuff. Yeah. It's once you walk away and you're like, Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm currently working on for my 30-person team project is just writing a uh, post-mortem as I go along, just trying to like, write down all the different things I've learned so far, all the different stuff I've screwed up, and making sure I like, write, write it down and remember it for the future. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. I did that for a long time with my own personal blog, making my films. And I started when I started going to games, too. It's just kind of trying to hold myself accountable. You know? Oh, definitely. Have something to look back to. Yeah. So what's the most, um, what, what are you like, what do you, what do you think about games and game development, stuff like that? Can you like not wait to get out of school to do X or are you like, Oh shit, this isn't what I expected it to be. What are your thoughts and ideas? Cause I know there's a couple people who, you know, message me or whatever, you know, talking about college and game development. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are curious about going into it or whatever. So can you share some thoughts on that stuff? Uh, I mean, specifically if it's uh, like, oh, hey, should I 
uh, like take a game development major at college? The answer is maybe, probably not. Uh, it's kind of one of those majors right now that, from a learning standpoint, isn't really formalized enough where uh, it's, if you just have a game development uh, like degree and you go up to a game development studio and say, oh, hey, I have this degree, can I please have this job? They're not necessarily going to say, oh, yes, you're definitely qualified for this in the same way that if you had a film degree and went to like a film studio. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things of the game development industry from everything I've seen is still very multi multidisciplinary in terms of where they're hiring from. And we don't really have a strong strong enough base of theory like we do in the film industry like they do in the film industry to say like, oh hey, you learned about this so you're competent in it. So if you're on the fence about it, I'd probably say that, oh hey, just like get a degree in programming, get a degree in English, get a yeah, get a weird degree. Get a degree in architecture. Go for it. Yeah, okay. But your overall, are you enjoying um, what you're studying and what you're doing? Oh, yeah, no. I definitely, like, enjoy what I'm studying, and I definitely am enjoying some of the people I'm working with. Yeah, the main value of a game design degree is networking. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and you get to be around people who are interested in what you're interested in. Absolutely. Phys in yeah, a physical space. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Getting to meet all those people, getting to work with those people, it's all about building those connections and meeting people who you can later, like, go on to form friendships with and form work relationships with. Like, if you can go to, like, SCAD or you can go to DigiPen or one of the other uh, other couple big game development schools, I, I would recommend doing that if you want to get a job in the game industry after, just because if you go to those schools, you will end up with a job at the end of it just because that's the pool a lot of companies hire from. Okay, those are specific schools that have yeah. what programs like internships that turn into something bigger or something like that? Yep, yep. Uh, schools that like have specific internships that turn into something else or just it's a seal of approval of, oh, hey, we work with you. We know what to look for. You laid in the coffin and drank the blood, so you're in our cult now. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you have drank the Kool-Aid, you have found it sweet, so we, yeah, we know you're with us now. <laughs> oh, okay. So, like, what's super exciting for you, like, something you're thinking about when you get done with school, like, to do? Uh, so, my main ambition right now is uh, trying to find some sort of producer job I can do, just sort of like taking the stuff I'm doing on my 30-person team right now and transferring it over to like work on a smaller game, work on a larger game. Yeah, increasingly I'm interested in like doing the larger management stuff, steering the ship as opposed to being in the weeds, uh, like making uh, micro-level decisions. Okay, you like making decisions. Yeah, I like... Yeah, I'm a very big fan of making decisions. I'm a very big fan of, uh, like, doing large-level stuff. And actually, I'm a big fan of, like, planning out smaller-level stuff as well. I just found that I'm not as, good as, not as good at programming as I probably should be if I want to do, like, a low-level weeds design job. But I am very passionate about spreadsheets and documentation, so I can probably do a lot of the higher-level design and production stuff. Oh, man, I love spreadsheets, too. Oh, spreadsheets are so good. I'm like, get out the spreadsheet. Oh, I better make a spreadsheet. 
for everything. Yes. Spreadsheet. Oh, remodeling. Need to make a spreadsheet. Yeah, right now I am currently managing my entire 30-person team on a spreadsheet. Have you ever heard of a, a RACI matrix? No, what's that? Uh, it's a, a RACI, Responsible, Accountable, Consulted, Informed. And you have every single task listed along the, uh, what is it, the Y-axis, and every single person listed across the uh, X-axis. And each person has either R, A, C, or I. So if you're responsible, you're the person directly working on the task. So if one of the tasks is uh, white-boxing a level, you are responsible for it. Accountable is the person who is managing the team and who gives final approval on it. And, uh, yeah, they're the person that the person who is responsible for the task goes to to make sure that they're actually doing the thing right. Consulted is someone who isn't working on the task, but is like helping out the person who is doing it. So if I have, have a new person on the team who doesn't know what goes into whiteboxing a level and the team leader is busy, I would assign someone as consulting on that task for that person. And informed is uh, just, you, you're not working on the thing at all, but you're just in the loop. And if you're not on any of the, and if you're not otherwise one of the other three letters, you're just informed of the task. Okay. So you're classifying people all the time. Yep. Like, yeah, the Dude, main reason you're not even informed. Ah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, the main reason I like this method as opposed to like uh, yeah, Jira or Hack and Plan is that it accounts for multidisciplinary people. It's like right now I have a person on the sound team who is working with the design team and working with the programmed programming team. So ordinarily, this would kind of make uh, like hack and plan planning a bit annoying because it's sort of like, okay, how do I, where do I put this guy on the board? But with that, I don't, this I don't really have to worry about, and everything is clearly laid out, and you can be on just every single task. Okay, and what was it called again? A RACI matrix? Yep, R-A-C-I, all capitals. Oh, and what does that come from? What industry does that come from? Uh, largely software engineering, I'm mostly sure. I could be wrong. Those guys got it all figured out, man. Every time I look they for really things, did. it's like, oh, they did this. How they manage software? Oh, you dummies! What? Yeah, that's what we do when we manage software projects. Ha ha ha! So like, hey, man, <laughs> I'm trying to learn. They <laughs> got yeah. it all figured out. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's this weird thing where I have somehow found myself doing work for Northrop Grumman, and I don't know how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. No. Like one of my classes. Yeah, because I'm in the honors college at my school, and it's like one of the classes I had to take was a uh, oh human centered design. Okay, that sounds design related. I'll probably learn something about uh, user design. Maybe some like oh hey, here's why there's a hole in a coffee mug grip, and it's like okay, yeah, that makes sense. What it turns out I'm doing is I'm creating a proposal for Northrop Grumman to transfer over to uh, agile methodology, which sort of like I I didn't realize I was signing up for this, and I don't know how this happened. Are they using the students like free subcontractors or something? In a word, yes. Okay. I mean, if you, we wanted to be really cynical, we could say that I'm paying them to do it because I'm paying tuition to go to the school. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've heard of things. I remember there was this animation school in Florida, and they were hooked up with some animation studio there, and you had to pay the studio to do a free internship for them. So... Uh... As long as you're not doing that, it's like, hey, all right, it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just, 
Yeah, recently all the conversation has just been about, uh, oh, hey, coronavirus, all the schools are shut down, so what happens to, like, all of our tuition and, like, like parking permits and everything? Yeah, you know, that kind of, that bummed me out, because I was like, oh, man, that sucks. Like, you only get a certain, you know, amount of time in your life to do that, and then it's like, and it had to be when all the shit's shut down, and, you know? Yeah. I don't know, like, the overwhelming response from a bunch of the people who I talk to online has just been, yeah, no, this literally doesn't change my life in any way. I would be inside cooped up on, on my computer all day anyway. So it hasn't affected your school, like your classes or anything? Oh, no, it's definitely affected all my classes. All of oh. them are now fully online. So all of my professors who don't know how to put together a PowerPoint have suddenly had to figure out how to use Zoom, which is very funny. Uh-oh. Yeah. Hey, we're using Zoom right now on the Game Dev Grid podcast because Discord was, like, tweaking out. I don't know why, but... The future is now. Yeah, so... All right, so now you're going to have to kill some people from Northrop Grumman or Boeing or whatever. And Yeah. But... You're yeah, learning. Very, yeah, I'm learning. I'm Yeah, it's a... Excellent opportunity to learn about uh, agile project planning methodology, which is good because it was sort of what I was interested in anyway. So let's talk before our podcast over. Let's talk about some some gritty um, p- planning or no planning from your perspective now in school a year later, almost a year later. You've got an idea for a game. You're managing the project. What do you do first? Who does what? What are you having people do? Uh, so, first step is have a meeting, have everybody throw out every possible idea they have, and uh, figure out which ones people are gravitating towards. Uh, yeah. Actually, no. Yeah. Step one, figure... Yeah. So, step so wh- zero, figure out what the constraints you're working under are. So oh, yeah. That's out the what- one. Yep. Yeah. So, step zero, figure out the constraints you're working under, figure out what the game is being made for, who's going to play it. Uh, how long you have to work on it, things like that. Are you allowed to, what kind of content can you put in it? And more importantly, once you put together, once you have your team, I'm assuming that came before step zero, so step negative one, you have a team. Uh, so, and then you start putting together like, oh, hey, I know that these people can't really do like photorealistic art, so we can't really do anything that is based around that. So not just the constraints of uh, place your displaying it at and the people who are going to play it, but the constraints of the people who are working on it and uh, like just knowing their abilities in that regard. Yeah, because so instead of wasting time with some dude saying, I want to make an MMORPG, it's like by having your constraints right off the bat, you filter all those things out, right? Yep, absolutely. Because that's always going to come up. So you just, you're saving time. You're even saving time, not wasting time talking about things you can't do. Yep. yep. So. And then uh, uh, step one after that is just having a, a meeting where everybody's throwing out their ideas within those constraints. And I've actually found that people are more productive uh, in throwing out ideas once you give them those constraints. Yeah. Because they actually have. Yeah, they have something to work around, something to bounce ideas off of beforehand as opposed to just having an infinite space and being told to build something. I mean, that's why there's a, you know, figurative box, you know, to create ideas within or work within because when you don't have any constraints, then people go nuts and kill everybody. 
Well, not, oh, to, not to killing, but you know, they have a hard time. Yeah. And it's especially important for these like in-person meetings that you create a schedule beforehand because otherwise everyone uh, gets kind of sidetracked and just sort of will spend 20 minutes discussing, oh, hey, will our game be like strictly linear or will you be able to choose your things and just spend like half the meeting talking about that and not actually move on to any of the other pressing concerns, get stuck on a very low level point. So too much micro, not enough macro. Exactly. Okay. Is that a thing? People are like, hey guys, we're getting a little too micro here. We need to go back to the macro. Yeah. So yeah, having a schedule made and like an itinerary before you start the meeting is unbelievably useful for that. Ideally, no meeting should be last longer than an hour. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Zoom actually has a feature where it will stop recording or it will just shut off after like 40 minutes. And a lot Sorry of people I know... <laughs> yeah, no, it's just sort of like, yeah, no, I would pay extra for that feature. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, no, step two is pitch documents. So take the idea that everybody has coalesced around and... Uh, uh, yeah, just take that idea, everybody's coalesced around, and put it in specific definable features and, uh, like, ideas. So specify the camera angle, specify who the main character is, specify what the premise of the game is, specify the gameplay style. Uh, after that, it's a mood board, which is a collection of images that other people have made that you haven't made that you can start, that you can give to somebody and say, hey, this is the sort of look and feel we want to do for our game. Uh, can you make something similar to all of these when the person is making concept art? Okay. So it's like if I handed someone a picture of an Alucard from Helsing, uh, uh, like Snake from Metal Gear Solid, and uh, I don't know, someone else, uh, like a knight from Dark Souls, and said, oh, hey, we need something similar to all, all three of these characters, or our world is sort of like a intersection of all these things. Uh, make something based off of that. Okay. Usually it's a bit more uh, like aligned than that. That was just like the three things I was looking at around my room. Sorry. So how do you lock in um, the ideas about the actual mechanics of the game and things like that? Is that in that initial meeting? Do you lock that in or how does that work out? So in that initial meeting, it's largely macro stuff. So for our initial meeting, uh, our, the only things that we knew were we were making a platformer type game, so like orthographic side along perspective. We were making a boss rush game, and we were focusing on melee combat. Okay, those were just the constraints that you got that your team agreed to um, use. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that was the direction that we decided to go to because that was what everybody thought sounded the coolest and would be the most fun to make. Yeah, because you need, I mean, it's a thing, right? You got to balance enthusiasm with practicality because you want to be enthusiastic about it, but it has to be, actually be something you can pull off too because if you don't, then you're just demoralized and everyone loses motivation. So it has to be within reach of the team. How would you figure out what's in reach of the team? I'm just thinking out loud. Uh, so a lot of that just comes down to factoring. So figuring out what all would need to be in the thing uh, for it to actually be good, and then breaking it down to each of its component parts and figuring out, oh, hey, if this one feature could balloon work like five times as much 
as opposed to adding this other thing, which is just like, yeah, no, we can do that in, in a day. Uh, yeah. Are you familiar with a uh, shovel knight? Yes, the DuckTales like game with the knight. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, shovel knight ran into a problem where when it was initially Kickstarter, yeah, when it was initially Kickstarted, one of the goals they offered was uh, yeah, different playable characters for the campaign. So you had Shovel Knight, and then you had like Plague Knight and uh, King Knight, and uh, all those other characters. Mm-hmm. What they, when they were planning this out, they didn't really realize what went into making one of these things. So, and when they kickstarted, they all said, "Oh, hey, yeah, no, we're going to give these all away for free as a Kickstarter reward." What they didn't realize was, was that for each one of these characters, they basically had to remake the entire game from scratch. Uh oh. Yeah. So that's one of those instances where not factoring it and not realizing that if you make a new character, you have to make new levels, you have to make new bosses, and you have to make new level designs for yeah, just based around the mechanics. It's one of yeah, it's one of those things where you didn't realize how complicated that was. As opposed to, oh hey, we added in a new enemy where it's oh hey, all that goes into that is a new enemy AI script, new sprite, and, uh, yeah, just, like, player hitbox interactions. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff just comes through experience, you know, knowing how to um, create your architecture for your code or your art or whatever, so it's easy to add things later. Oh, absolutely, yeah. A lot of it is just sort of stuff you don't realize until you, like, stumble over it and trip. Yeah, I'm, what I've been surprised with and the few freelance jobs I've done in the game space when I wasn't the programmer, um, when I was doing art and sound and stuff, is that I was just learning programming. I wasn't very good. I was just learning it. But, you know, I was trying to study how to do it the right way, like the nerd way, reading all the books. And I remember seeing the programmers that were working on some of these things and their, the, the way they were building things was just so sloppy and, like, lazy and hard-coded everything. And I was just remember being back then like, I don't think this is good. Like, I don't think you should do this. And then all of those freelance projects like failed. They tried to like crunch at the end to meet their deadlines and they failed. And oh, yeah. I'm not going to blame it on the programmers, but I w- personally, I was surprised when I started going out there. And then, then I started thinking about, you know, you learn more about the real world and reality of how people work. And, you know, and you hear about this job security thing where it's like people do their work slower or worse so that they'll have more work. <laughs> you know, if it's like, I'm paying you, um, I'm going to pay you by the week for digging holes. Like people dig holes really slow for quote job security. So I'm sure it happens in other fields too. It's like, I'm going to program this really badly. So then you have to pay me to come and fix it. Oh yeah. I mean, oftentimes it's not even like a conscious thing. It's just sort of one of those things of, we have this idea that those who work in professional industries are sort of hyper competent individuals that it's like the people in wall street are all like, like tyrannical business people that people on uh, film sets are all like Kubrickian, Spielbergian, like geniuses that the people in government are all like hyper competent West Wing characters. But in reality, it's basically the same people who work at Walmart are the same people who work everywhere. Yeah. You realize, right? No one knows what they're doing and they're just making it up as they go along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. And it's just sort of like, yeah, no, the average person is, yeah, populates every single area of public interest. Yeah. 
So making games, game. How much? How many more um, months, years do you have in your game program now? Uh, so only one more, actually. So two more semesters, fingers crossed. Uh, I'm currently in a weird position with my math program where I have to take a placement test, but I can't take the placement test because the testing center is closed down because there's a plague going on. Mm -hmm. uh, so fingers crossed, only two more. I'm able to get that sorted out. And I'm, I'm sure they'll give you special circumstances in which you can make it up or whatever, right? Oh, yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed, totally. And, uh, yeah, no, at the end of that, it's just going to be two more semesters. I have to have an internship. Uh, so hopefully going to get that over the summer. And then, yeah, no, just uh, graduate, try to find a job, and jump into the heavily overpopulated market that is uh, game, the games industry. But I would think, from what you're really interested in, there would be far less people doing that. I think you would have less competition if you're managing things and figuring all that stuff out. Yeah, I am very optimistic about that. I've yeah, that seems to be what's indicated by the various stuff I've looked into. But uh, yeah, biggest thing I've learned so far is that no one knows anything. <laughs> so yeah, just pretend like you do, and then have some fucking spreadsheets and you know know what you're doing with that. And yeah, people hire you. Yeah, there's like. Just there's a quote I never forgot. It's from this old book, but it was, the world gets out of the way of a man who knows where he's going. And <laughs> I found that to be true in that like, hey, if you convince people that you know where you're going and you're passionate about it and you know what you're talking about, they'll believe you and they'll hire you and they'll get out of your way. They'll follow you. And, you know, when I first started my film career, I, I made a couple, I made like 20 or 30 short films and it been a feature film. And I paid nobody. I had camera people, I had actors, I had all the people. And it's just because I was, I knew where I was going or they thought I did, you know? Yeah. So if you're confident, I mean, that is another thing that's rare these days is confidence. So if you're confident what you're doing, people will, you know, all right, you can manage this. Cause I mean, there's so many people, so many companies, ideas. We want to make this game. Oh, yeah, we have artists, we have programmers, and if it's someone that can put them all together and guarantee a shipping product, like, hey, man, that's pretty great. So, yeah. And you could keep a blog called The Shipper, and you just ship things. And then you do a, <laughs> you do a TED Talk on shipping where you're throwing packages all over the crowd. <laughs> I'm some kind of badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know that term, right? Like the marketing term, shipping. It's about finishing oh, yeah. shit, getting out there. Okay. I think it came from Seth Godin, maybe, the marketing dude who wrote a bunch of books on marketing. That's where I read it oh, a nice. bunch. And then I was like, okay, yeah, I get it, shipping. And that became a big emphasis for me. Like, all right, maybe no one's going to see this thing, but I finished it and, you know, eventually. And I was just yeah, looking I mean, at, at um, sorry about that, uh, different, what was I looking at? The guy who made Five Nights at Freddy's, you know? And yeah. I was looking at his bio and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. He was doing games for like 25 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he actually started out like making a horrifying uh, children's games, which were supposed to look normal, but he can figure out how to make them look not terrifying. I thought it was just cool to see, like, I know nothing about the guy. I'm not into those games. I don't play them, whatever. But just like, man, this guy stuck at it for all these years and then finally had this huge hit which changed his life and did all this stuff but I was like that's kind of cool you must really love making games yeah I mean the thing I find most encouraging in life isn't really all the like 
a young savants who got famous and made a million dollars at age 18. It's all the people who, like, didn't really hit their stride until they hit, like, 40 or 50. Yeah, you know what? I mean, you know what those are called. Those are the outliers. So mm. the geniuses, whatever, who are there, 19, I'm a billionaire, and ah, they're outliers if they're real, but it's just like, that's something I've been talking to a lot of people about, about data and facts, and especially given the environment we're in right now where there's not much data or facts, and people are celebrating the outliers as if that is the majority. I won't get into that because this isn't a conspiracy uh, podcast <laughs> yet, but yeah, when you look at the outliers, and it's like, no, man, don't look at the outliers. Like, yeah, there's a dog with fucking four heads, but most dogs have one, and like, yeah. you know, so yeah, the majority of the people, it takes them a long time. They got to grind at it for anything. But I guess that outlier thing is thrown all over social media and YouTube and all that shit because it gets views. So then it kind of tweaks your mind, right? Where you think everyone is just a genius instantly. Yeah, no, it's a thing of like, it makes for a more interesting narrative. The person who like suddenly came up with an idea and then found themselves with a billion dollars. But in terms of like what is more likely to happen, what is like, more realistic to happen it's just sort of like yeah no you worked very hard at it and you didn't find success for a while and then you found one idea that worked and then you eventually got like mildly successful at it and i feel like that's something to be like respected and strived for yeah i find that stuff a lot more well i mean um more motivating and inspiring i mean people that just you know lightning strikes you get lucky it's like that's not inspiring because it's like what you just got to hope for lightning to strike no but the people that worked hard and stayed with it and grinded like uh, in the grit, like game dev grit yeah. to see them come out of it. But it, I, I was just thinking about it. It's kind of weird that in, let's just say in the West here, like the traditional Hollywood hero movie, you know, the let's go through some more tropes of the guy, you know, falling or having the bad thing happen. And then he's training for this long time, right. Building up. And then finally he beats the bad guy or does whatever. But then in social media and all this stuff, it's just about people who have things instantly because they're lucky or geniuses, whatever. So it's like, wait, do we want to work hard and grind through stuff or do we just want everything instantly and, you know, win the lottery? Yeah, just sort of like the idea of instant gratification. It's like not not a good way to go about things. Don't bet on the lottery. Yeah, just like learn a skill. Take it's, stuff. Yeah, it's got to twist up people's minds, especially young people like yourself, Ripley, in college. It's got to twist your, your mind and your perspective and everything up. Just bef before we go on the podcast, what does the world look like to you in that way when you see all these different things? Like, what's the, the, the way? What's the chaff? What's the bullshit? What's the real stuff? How do you figure – how do you go through it? It's just like everything's crazy. No one knows what they're doing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, nobody knows what they're doing, but also I don't know what I'm doing, so maybe some of these people know slightly more, slightly less, and just got to – work hard, grind through it, and there's no failure state at life. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, it would death be, or that's just end of life? Yeah, no, that's just sort of like the end point. That's, if we're using video game metaphors, that's the point where the console is turned off, but there isn't like a you lose screen that comes up in your life. Some old yeah, like, guy, older than me, would be like, well, Sonny, you've never been audited by the IRS. <laughs> that's when you <laughs> fail. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's I don't know, I find it very encouraging, the idea of, like, you don't need to have the nuclear family ideal of working a 40-hour job, to yeah, a wife, two kids, and a dog in order to, like, succeed at life. You can define your own level of success. 
Yeah, man, you need six wives, no kids, and four dogs. That's what it's about. <laughs> I'm moving to Utah later. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, because, you know, I look at all this madness, and I was like, I'm, I'm the grizzled veteran already. I'm new in the game space, so I'm just like, what's going on here? But I have all that experience already. But I was like, man, if you're new to this stuff, this is madness. You have to really, I mean, generations adapt to it. But, you know, a lot of this stuff is new, bombarding people with these new technologies and new stuff. So you guys, yeah. are, you're mutating. I mean, part of this, yeah, I mean, if you ask me this question like two months ago, I'd probably have a different answer. But right now, my brain has kind of been broken by the coronavirus stuff because we are now living reality on chaos mode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just sort of like three months ago, no one would have predicted there'd be a plague going on, and right now the response to this has just been absolutely, like, batshit insane. Yeah, well, we both live in the same country, the United States of America, and, you know, in my opinion, yeah, it's been that. insane for a long time. It's just bubbling up now, and it's like... Oh, yeah if you ever dug into these different things, quote, that are under crisis right now, like the healthcare system or anything, it's been fucking under crisis and insane for like 30 years already. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's just gotten harder to ignore. Yeah, but that would be for, you know, we would talk about that in the conspiracy podcast, but we're not doing that one yet because uh, maybe I do have controversial opinions. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah if, I mean, if we ever yeah, do a, a conspiracy podcast, yeah, you want to do a conspiracy podcast? I would love to do a conspiracy podcast. Let's do it. All right, because I recently, on my YouTube channel, M.Strange, I did a, a conspiracy about myself, um, and people seem to like that, so maybe I'll do more, cons you know, X-Files music, that kind of thing. Well, sounds you know. fun. So thanks for being on, Ripley. Um, it's oh, good to hear you're still alive and surviving your program, and now you're telling people what to do. That's pretty good. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, happy to be here, happy to, like, share what I've learned, uh, yeah, learn a skill, yeah, learn how to, like, factor tasks, please learn project management, it makes my life a lot easier if I ever have to manage you. Is there anything you want to share, you want people to check out, go follow you on the internet or something? Uh, I mean, I made a YouTube video, so I'll probably uh, put that in the link, uh, it was, like, a seven-minute analysis of this free game, The Static Speaks My Name, which I, th I thought was pretty good. It's a good game. Go play it. Okay, cool. So thanks again for being on, Ripley, and we'll hear from you again in the future. Maybe you said you got one more year of school. Is that what you said? Yep. Yeah, I'll probably, uh, yes, this time next year, probably uh, record another episode. Yeah, or yeah, after another, maybe before your final semester. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, dude, are you ready? Dude, <laughs> it's going to be all over soon, man. And then, you know, you just got to go make a million dollars in a week instantly. Think of the outliers. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have Yeah, I have to go rob Elon Musk really quickly. Be right back. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that would be the way to do it. You know? yeah. But so cool. This has been episode number 18, I'm pretty sure. So thanks for being on. Thanks to whoever's listening. And if you're a gamey person, you do anything in relation to games and you want to be on the podcast and talk, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. So. Thanks again, Ripley. Until next time, goodbye. Until next time, see you later. Bye. All right.